0: The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God. Ah, uh, hello. All right. Um. So, hello, Matt. Uh, how do I see your last name here?
1: It's Lebanese and Armenian. It's Dagger and then Margosian.
0: i uh, never had a chance. Okay, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um.
1: So I'll try to divide it into two. So I'll, I'll divide it into sort of what the the sort of news of the protests, and then I'll I'll divide it into sort of why leftists should care. Because my main Uh, Twitter spats, and I try to be really nice with people. Um, But um, I've been very disappointed, uh, broadly speaking, with the left in the US on Hong Kong. And recently, uh, more and more journalists are starting to actually write columns like this in Hong Kong's press. Rosemary Ho, who's a pretty cool punk rock sort of journalist, um, punk rock in her aesthetics, she wrote a piece for the nation like, why is Marco Rubio? The only one talking about Hong Kong <laughs> and and this is what the right actually does oftentimes in Asia because the left um, our generation at least um, the older generation they're pretty good still you have a lot of older sort of like code pink style folks except they focus mostly on Asia so Tim Shorock at the nation pretty solid dude at presenting issues of Korea from the left but broadly in areas like Taiwan Hong Kong and elsewhere the right has really moved in And they are the main sort of voice uh, that people relate to when they think of who actually cares about uh, these nations. Um, And so it's a major blind spot for the left and a lot of the Asian leftists I know are very frustrated. Um, So anyways, to to get into Hong Kong. uh, So what happened is Hong Kong has a very strange uh, structure of its election. It's even more cotchified essentially, than than what we have. So in order to be the leader of Hong Kong, you're actually called the chief executive. You're nominated by a a 1,200 member organization known as the Executive Council. Now, those groups, those 1,200 members are chosen from various business interests. So finance, insurance, so on and so forth. Because they're from business interests and all of them want to make a shit ton of money, they will do whatever China tells them to do. So they're basically China's back channel into control over Hong Kong's uh, election of their leader. Okay. So the woman in charge of Hong Kong is – and stop meaning where I go. I, I talk like uh, fast,
0: but no, just no. you can
1: be like, stop talking.
0: No, go right ahead. So,
1: The the current chief executive of Hong Kong is a woman called uh, Carrie Lam. The other point to emphasize about this is um, in 2014, Beijing had actually proposed sort of their version of um, democracy. And this is what actually spurred the umbrella protests, where they said in 2017, they had promised Hong Kong that they would get universal suffrage, the ability to elect their chief executive, their leader. Now, what they, they meant by that is, is, was a very, very loose dickish interpretation of uh, what, what is known as the basic law, which is sort of a mini constitution that gives Hong Kong freedoms and protections that don't exist in China. So you can protest. What they're doing in Hong Kong right now, you do that in Beijing, you get a black bag, Put over your head and you'd be probably beaten very severely for a number of days. Wow. So what, um, what happened in 2014 is Beijing says to Hong Kong, look, we'll let you vote for the chief executive, one person, one vote. Hong Kong has about 7 million people living there, but we're going to select who that is. And so everyone went nuts because the Beijing essentially says, we'll give you we're, we're We'll give you two or three choices, sort of like your Biden or your Trump, but we're going to select who those people are, and they have to meet our vetting. And if they don't meet our vetting, we're not going to let them stand for the uh, chief executive election. So Hong Kong goes nuts, does the umbrella protests, and this is where you see a lot of people radicalized. And hopefully for our generation, I'm seeing more people call for sort of like general strikes on ice and so on and so forth. We can... Use the failure of Occupy Wall Street and say, well, what did we learn from that and do our own sort of mass uh, protest like they're doing in Hong Kong? So Hong Kong, hearing this news from Beijing about the dickish way they're going to structure elections, freaks out, does three months of protest known as the Umbrella Revolution, where they're occupying key parts of the city. Where they are doing mass civil disobedience, it's the first time really that violence on a scale that we're habituated to, or black and brown people in America have been habituated to. So tear gas is used, rubber bullets are used. It's the first time young people might, in Hong Kong, identify with the song Fuck the Police. Okay. Up until this point, people... Younger people in Hong Kong, and in general, the populace is pretty apolitical. They just want to live their life, make money.
0: That's what I always point. heard, yeah. Oh,
1: sure. Um, so, so I think that that is something where we can get into more for, like, the leftist part of, of doing this when we move out of the news sort of portion, because that is a fascinating thing. I think it points a lot to that anyone is a potential revolutionary, Sure. And the people who are participating in this right now, I think it is fair to call them relatively apolitical. But they're this sort of um, the existential horror of this idea that they're never going to be able to decide the fate of their country is driving is is creating revolutionaries in a way where they, these are not people who've read Marx one day in their life. <laughs> They probably have mostly, you know, played video games and studied, but they're out there getting tear gassed and their skulls bashed in by police batons. Sure. Um, okay, so anyway, going back to the news portion, so they all go out there, they protest. It doesn't work. Eventually, the business community turns against the protesters. You start seeing media being put out. Hong Kong is is a neoliberal's neoliberal golf course. It's basically. uh, Four families own 70% of the land. Uh, It has the highest GINI coefficient in Asia, most unequal, I believe the most unequal nation in Asia. So basically when the business community turns against you, they can just flood the territory with mass propaganda. They put up propaganda against the students. Uh, They put up who are the bulk of the protesters at that time. They essentially say, look, this is not productive anymore. We need to get back to business. So people do, they sort of stop supporting the protesters. Eventually, the people at that time who are leading the protests, and this is important, these were leader-led and organized protests. They had leaders who were organizing various civil disobediences in Hong Kong in 2014. They all step down. Some get arrested. Some are still in jail um later some of them run for what is the legislative council which is sort of hong kong's congress some of them win a lot of them are disqualified by beijing they say we're not going to let you get elected okay so that's 2014 sort of a whole lot of nothing but it's this seething pile of anger it's it's this hornet's nest that has never been resolved it's anger in a way that is very different than occupy wall street which I think, you know, we always have to remind ourselves actually happened. Right, this is this right. is an anger that is in people's hearts daily as they're reminded um, that they're sort of a colony in a nation, that they have they're, they're, they they feel like they're never going to get the freedoms that are promised to them. So it's this sort of existential dread that eats away at you. So 2019 um, rolls around. Beijing has scrapped this idea of that people can vote after the protest. They said, we're not going to fuck around with this. So it's back to the uh, executive uh, committee choosing who gets to be the leader. So the leader is this woman, Carrie Lam, super out of touch, doesn't know where to buy toilet paper, lives in a super glitzy sort of executive compound for uh, politicians, incredibly out of touch. Um, she, She and sort of her cronies... Uh, introduce a law that would allow formal extradition uh, agreements to be reached with Hong Kong with multiple countries. Hong Kong right now, if you remember that stupid fucking Batman movie where he goes, I go to Hong Kong, no dense international jurisdiction. That's a lot of stupid bullshit, except it is true that Hong Kong up until this point doesn't really have formalized extradition treaties with a lot of nations now for you and i you know i think we joke and, and for you as a comedian i know a bit about your struggle with ice where you were sort of persecuted but it's even more scary in hong kong in 2015 several book st- sellers who who were printing sort of salacious material about the government like xi jinping sleeps with mistresses and you know, Hu Jintao yeah. is, is gambling in Macau every night. They get blackbagged.
0: Sure. So, yeah. and some
1: of these are foreign nationals. So they have dual passports in places like Australia and uh and Sweden. They get blackbagged, uh, get sent over to Hong uh to China. And this has happened in other instances where people have just been blackbagged. And blackbagged for people who don't know what I mean is you Someone probably tasers you, put a black bag over your head and renditions you, like we do to terrorist suspects in the U.S. They rendition you back to China, put you in a black site, and you're you lose all your rights. Yeah, you you're thrown you're, in a van. No
0: What's that? The thing where they just uh, a van pulls up and they open that one huge sliding yeah. door and then you're just like bam, thrown in there.
1: Yeah, yeah, things like that. So, Carrie Lam, and her cronies—they say, "Well, you know, it'd be good because everyone is terrified of this anyway. Let's formalize it." So they use this murder case as, as an excuse, where a Taiwan um, uh, Taiwan citizen was traveling in Hong Kong and murdered his girlfriend, and they can't extradite him back. Um, I forget if it's Taiwanese or Hong Kong. The the It's a Taiwanese citizen. They can't extradite him back, so they use this as sort of an excuse to say, well, we should formalize extradition with all these countries. Now, it might sound sort of benign and technocratic, but um, China under Xi Jinping is no fucking joke. Um, Where if you – a cartoonist just got in trouble for doing a cartoon where people were pigs. Uh, you can't draw anything with Winnie the Pooh, one of the most popular
0: horror games. Why can't you draw anything with Winnie the Pooh?
1: Because netizens online sort of trolls have noted that she's uh, physique, shall we say, is <laughs> a
0: little bit
1: dumpy and bearish. Oh, that's so, so funny. And so they started calling him Xi Jinping Winnie the Pooh. And so... Uh, this led to you know any mention of Winnie the Pooh is banned they couldn't even show that Christopher Robin movie in in China
0: <laughs> oh that's so funny so nice.
1: and you know this this goes from the funny so things like um like that to the horrifying where basically they've built concentration camps for Uyghurs. they have completely closed down any NGOs they have barred a series of journalists from promoting. They have black bagged numerous students who've been leading Marxist groups. Eli Friedman's a great scholar to get in touch with. He, he writes for Jacobin. But basically students were going down and meeting the people who make our smartphones you know, for, for pennies on the dollar and commit suicide because they're not paid well enough. And trying to labor organize and so they get blackbagged. so basically if you're a threat in any way shape or form uh, they just say you know it's probably safer to just blackbag this guy or girl um, and that can look like a variety of things it can look like house arrest it can look like uh, you have to do a public apology and you're closely scrutinized uh, there on after by the state uh, security agents and in the case of if you're a Hong Kong citizen uh, it can mean that you're, you know, you're you're put in a van, driven over the border, and no one knows where you went until you appear on Chinese TV weeks later issuing a public apology. And then, again, you don't have rights at that point. You're at the mercy of the Chinese state. So uh, this bill was introduced, and ever since then, it's been a series of escalating protests that are growing in terms of, who they're radicalizing and the actions that the state is taking to try to, uh, stop the protests. Um, this occurs in, in many different forms, probably the most, the turning point for when this became really, there's a couple turning points. Um, one is the police, have become at this point the enemy of the hong kong people so before the protests were relatively civil then the next protest you know they're pushing on the police lines a little bit you know the police have their riot shields protesters getting right up to the police shouting in their face next protest maybe they're actually pushing they're trying to break through the police line of riot shields next protest okay the police have their tear gas and at this point they fired more tear gas in in sort of i think like a the of the month or so that's been the heat of these protests than they did in the three months in 2014 and then the next protest um you know the police are just beating the shit out of people so if you're going to focus on sort of two events that have really radicalized people one would be um uh on on july 21st uh protesters were, were coming back from an event in a in a out, uh, a place outside of town, sort of uh, uh, a red point or green point, call it green point, sort of far outside the city center, this area called Yuan Long. Okay. All of a sudden, about 200 gangsters in white shirts holding bats, PVZ pipes, machetes, come into the station where the protesters are. And in, in Hong Kong, you all dress in black to show solidarity. So people will wear it matching uniforms to identify themselves and sort of as a way to build solidarity. Okay. Um, similar, not to the Panthers, but it's the same sort of idea. Like this, we have strength in numbers. This is our identity. We are the many, so on. So all of a sudden in this station, about you know, 100, 200 gangsters burst in with PVC pipes, bats, machetes, and just start beating the shit out of anyone in black. They beat up women. They beat up journalists. They beat up anyone they can get their hands on. And uh, it's later discovered that um, there's numerous shots, because journalists are blanketing the city throughout these protests, of Hong Kong politicians who have close relationships to Beijing, uh, as well as police appear to be actually collaborating with these, with these uh, individuals who later turn out to be triads, which are these large... Hong Kong organizations that are a mix between sort of clans and gangs.
0: Yeah, we yeah. We can think of
1: them as as gangs.
0: Yeah, I uh, I grew up in uh, Houston, which has a huge Chinatown population, and uh, I remember seeing triads around. And I uh, some I, I did I, somebody explained it to me once, but I, I don't know the details. You know.
1: We can get into it if there's if there's time, but. So anyway, basically, it's horrific enough here that these people are beating up anyone. So they're beating up people who are not protesters. They're beating up, as I said, journalists. Basically, if, if, if you got a body, they're going to try to lay one on you with a pipe or, or, or a bat or, or something. Sure. And so these photos come out the next day because Hong Kong, again, this is the weird irony. We can't vote for our president, but we have a free press. We have this very compromised political system. But we can protest So the next day all these photos come out and people go nuts in terms of what's happened where basically at that point it's it sort of becomes it's not a war in the sense of we're going to commit violence against the state but it's very much a war in terms of how people uh... how people's mentality changes against the state before it's just sort of look we don't know what's going to happen we're trying to work things out so on and so forth After you see photos of politicians shaking hands with triads after they're finished beating people up and police ignoring triads while they go into stations. Oh, and a key point, police don't show up for 45 minutes. In Hong Kong, that's insane. Hong Kong is one of the most punctual cities on the earth. So people were calling and calling for 45 minutes. Cops don't show. Then the very next weekend, Hong Kongers is a way to show they're not afraid, go to the very same place and do protests um, against sort of this collusion between police and triads. And what did the police do? If you know cops, you know they're not the smartest, you know, you, you don't join the police force cause you got a, uh, you got high hopes and dreams. You do it probably cause you're, you got some issues. Yeah. They, in the exact same subway to the exact same protesters. Beat the shit out of them the exact same way the triads did, with with batons and tear gas and pepper spray, uh, replacing sort of the handheld Grand Theft Auto style weapons of the triads. And so ever since then, this this sort of protest the week after uh, 721 on on 728, it's just like no one knows what's going to happen. The protest has sort of shifted from at that time it's like look just withdraw this goddamn extradition bill and we will be fine to you have liberals basically like um wine moms that that's not a good equivalent but (laughs) that's the only analogy you basically have wine moms saying we are going to um keep protesting until there's universal suffrage and what that's looked like and, and maybe we can talk about why this is important to the left and i think why a lot of hong kong people are frustrated um is you have grannies protesting. So there's famous shots now of just grandmothers going up to cops with, you know, full tear gas and riot gear, screaming basically shame on you. You have um, unions holding huge protests. So there was a huge protest in the Hong Kong International Airport where when you get off your goddamn flight, maybe you're going to Disney World, maybe you're, you're, you know, you're mad Jeffrey Epstein's in jail, so you're trying to... I don't know, unwind, so you go to Hong Kong where you have a penthouse, Um, you hear as soon as you enter that airport, you hear free Hong Kong, free Hong Kong, and they give you pamphlets. Um, And that's another point maybe we can touch on just how organized this protest is um, while being leaderless. They'll give you pamphlets saying this is what you can do to help if you're a foreigner. These are the issues we're trying to do. And then on this Monday, what I would say to any of your listeners, if if you get it out or if you want to just tweet it out, there may be a general strike. Now I know, probably for you as as a leftist, that's like the holy grail of of any political action is a general strike.
0: Of course. And if you
1: listen to uh, you know more traditional publications that I occasionally. Uh, that I'm glad they exist, but I wish that they were less uh, ideological. You know, oh, we have to go through unions. Oh, we have to build power through listening to podcasts. I'm being a little <laughs> bit facetious there. but um,
0: No, this is praxis. They,
1: they're making a general strike, which I never thought You know, I would see. him. I sort of have resigned myself to sort of read Mark Fisher and just continuously get more and more depressed. But to yeah. see a general strike in my lifetime, For people like who we were talking about, just want to play video games and just want to, you know, shop in the mall. That's incredible.
0: Cher called for a general strike about six months ago, but it didn't stick here for some reason.
1: But I, I, so anyway, I mean, that's a good place to sort of, I mean, we can transition anywhere you want to go. But that's where things are now, where it's sort of seen, it seems as if the protests, which again are leaderless, there's no Sanders, there's no um, right. uh, a civic organizers of any kind um, are, are calling for a general fucking strike. Um, and, and that to me, if the left like, can't get off its ass and cover some of this, it, it, it really, I think, speaks to a lot of the arrogance um, that many people in the world rightfully feel about America. Um, <laughs> it, it, that sort of thing goes two ways. Where it is important that we criticize uh, when our foreign policy is very harmful or uh, discriminatory or violent to other nations. But if we can't offer solidarity or at least show interest when people are, are doing things that we constantly talk about, yeah, I, I just, I, I just, uh, it boggles my mind. And so I've been on Twitter this past month contacting people like you. My friends at the horror vanguard, uh, other people getting into fights without meaning to, with, sure. with various sort of leftist podcasts of just like, <laughs> why, why.
0: Well, when I when
1: you hear about Marianne Williamson's orbs compared <laughs> to a fucking general strike?
0: Okay, now I get it where you're coming from with the the political theater stuff here in America. It is very stupid, um, and I guess so. This is you, you paint quite a picture, and I'm uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we had you on to sort of platform this now because now uh, it's sort of making sense to me. Um, at least I guess what the the important point of this is, which is that. Um, Okay, so I've been thinking about uh, the alienation of liberalism a lot lately, and how it sort of causes um, people that live in um, in societies with like uh, you know electoral politics and uh, sort of capitalism controlling everything behind the scenes to um, to have the option to not be political so there's only like a small portion of the population that's really engaged to begin with and then what they are able to be engaged with is from there even more limited which just causes a huge clusterfuck and is uh, an entirely different situation than when you are um you know than when you live in a, a society i guess it's structured differently where you're like forced into having a relationship with your state this is just something i've been trying to dissect a lot in the states because um it just seems to be like you know one of the biggest lingering diseases of being an american is uh you know especially now in the in the hyper normalization future we just have a a, a make it make him up politics just to believe whatever the fuck you want you know um but i guess what's interesting about this this picture you're painting in china to me is uh you know i have talked to people who've like lived in china and uh in you know fairly recent years and one thing that people do talk about is like up i guess until recently no. you p- people would just not like you just wouldn't be part of your life i guess was what a lot of people would sort of try to portray to me like you wouldn't really have a relationship with politics at all so to 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 think about this sort of uh like mass horizontal leaderless, um, activization of people all at once is, um, it's like inspiring. Um, and I guess it's interesting to look at it and go, well, where did it come from? Where's it going? You know,
1: could I, um, chat a bit about that with you if that's okay. Yeah, please do. So, um, I, I interviewed, a, a, a really a brilliant, There's brilliant scholars on the Philippines, um, and what they've gone through, I think, really relates to what Hong Kong is going through, where they talk about this thing that Westerners do not think about, where Westerners had democracy, but you know what they do to other nations, and I'm using air quotes here, they give them democracy. So the democracy sort of you and I have that we were born into is extremely different than a nation who was forced into that. So what's going on in Hong Kong? And again, this is sort of the hubris and and um, the inability to center yourself in other perspectives is they are fighting for a democracy you and I cannot relate to because it's their democracy. It's not America giving it to them. It's not they wanna recreate the British system. It's that they have this generalized concept of freedom they don't know what it looks like and that's part of its power and appeal because what it looks like to one of those old protesters compared to one of those students getting their faces bashed in by police batons looks completely different and so i think for what we're seeing in hong kong what we're seeing with the protests in new zealand with Maori people against the development of their land what we're seeing in monokia and these are big things. The Rock was just on Jimmy Fallon. If Jimmy Fallon is more left than American media, that's a problem. <laughs> what we're seeing in these places is that they have an idea of sort of something beyond the political structures uh, that we are so fatigued by. So for me, at least, when I listen to a lot of the American left, which I know people out here who are in Occupy. It seems like a lot of people just sort of battling for power and wanting to fuck each other. <laughs> what I would be interested in and what I, why I'm so passionate about what's going on in Asia is it's these concepts of freedom or concepts of the sacred that are completely beyond the sort of political infighting and minutiae that I think people like uh, myself, I won't speak for you, Jake, but I just find so fatiguing and limiting, you know, comparing a vision of democracy that you've never had. You went from being one colony of the British to another of China. Freedom is, must almost seem like a sacred concept to you. And then again, you know, the same in these, these other places I'm mentioning where the ability to to think of something as sacred in a world where everything can be bought and sold is an incredible revolutionary concept. Um, so these are these is sort of what I've become very interested in and how I fight the fatigue uh that I feel when I when I only think within these sort of trapped set political systems. I think you need to find something that is beyond them that can unite a lot of different people.
0: Um yeah, absolutely. I uh I think fatigued is a, probably a great word for it because that is definitely uh that is definitely how it feels, at least from my perspective, trying to, if I were to try to explain, you know, why am I not connected to this? Uh, Why do I, you know, find myself uh, limited in some way in terms of being um, a better leftist, you know, as, uh, as it relates to, I don't know, like a situation I don't think about every day, like China, it's like, I'm fucking exhausted. And also, so, I mean, there's like a a, a limited capacity that I feel like people in uh, Western liberalism, you know, f- feel like there's just as, as much, there's only a certain amount of energy that we have. And then there's also the structural limitations. I mean, how absurd is it that I'm a fucking comedian and then we're having this conversation, you know, this, this, uh, this, this shit should be. There should be someone with a bigger platform, I guess, um you know having this conversation and examining this stuff it's what's fucked up right now is that you know that's not happening <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, hopefully we can get you there
1: Jake, I find you very inspirational in terms of how you've put yourself out there, and I always remember like what sort of Yanis Varoufakis, who at times can be pretty cool. I don't agree with everything he does, um and I don't like whenever uh Well, he's a complicated figure, but you know, he, everyone should be able to have a say. And I think what I have really, um, gravitated more towards is a politics that I see here in Asia where many people are having a say, I think, and I, I talked about this with Riley of Trash Future. I'm very tired of a left that wants to replace the experts with their experts. When you look at the structure, and this is a conversation I had with that uh, China professor, and it'll come out in the audio, so it's okay to repeat it. Now, we don't have a lot of organic intellectuals, and I don't know how well read you are on your Gramsci. Uh, This is a term I had to be introduced to, but If we allow people who come from these sort of hierarchical institutions of power to dictate the concepts uh, that we live our lives by, the political structures that we engage in, and how we we, uh, structure our critiques, we'll never learn to sort of find our own voice. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world has been led by experts up until this point. I think it's about time we let people in who are not beholden to sort of these structures of power that deem someone uh, an expert or who is not an expert. Um, so I'm, I'm very wary of, of this sort of um, uh, self uh, castigation, self criticism. I would love more comedians and more people <laughs> who are not experts to get involved and to, and to say their opinion because otherwise, and I think you've probably seen this in Brooklyn, you end up with these hierarchical power structures, right. um,
0: yeah, they are
1: trying to critique power, and it just becomes almost farcical.
0: Yeah, well, that is very reassuring. I think maybe it's just that it's eleven in the morning here, and I'm hungover, so I, uh, that's good. Good words to hear. I have read a little Gramsci. I know my cultural hegemony. I think I understand what you're getting at here. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> that's actually, man, that's a really good point. Um, it's just. Uh, I guess the how is <laughs> what's so frustrating. Um, what's the middle step to where we we get to to where we we you know we prevent this system of um, yeah of uh, you know professional intellectuals from becoming gatekeepers and all this information. Um, Shit
1: like this helps. Um, <laughs> I mean, I like what Max Alvarez says, where he says he views sort of podcasts as solidarity. The rule I have basically is what Chomsky, another figure I don't agree with everything, but he, the legend of Chomsky basically is if you write him, he writes back. Now I can't tell you how easy it is for me to get like an interview with a scholar who has 30, 40 or 50,000 fans on Twitter or multiple best-selling books. I interviewed like Samuel Moyne, who's like one of the most respected constitutional law professors in the country do you know how hard it is to get on a brooklyn podcast It's a problem <laughs> that is a that's a problem that it's easy to get an interview with like the most respected minds in their various field, or protest leaders or um individuals who at least internationally are trying to change the world it's very easy to get a hold of them you know who it's hard to get a hold of the american left
0: <laughs> yeah that is interesting because um yeah in, ter- in terms of uh I mean, one thing I've learned from doing this show, honestly, is that yeah, people are very gettable, especially people that are on um, the more dry side of things, like journalists and intellectuals and things like that. And then the entertainment aspect of it is uh, what's way more popular, and therefore, yeah, it's, it's harder to book certain people. And um, you know that also obviously ties back to that uh, to the you know the sports entertainment junk food uh, entertainment thing we were talking about earlier with the debates and stuff like that now um i mean part of that is a byproduct of probably capitalism itself and that like uh you know we're selling what's being bought (laughs) and uh and also i don't i mean i don't know i don't know what kind of freedom you have once you start making like a lot of money doing this but um you know I'm, i'm pretty much just uh still flying by the seat of my pants doing this shit and so um, I do answer a lot of emails. <laughs> I keep my DMs open, much to the detriment of my mental health, so that I can meet people like yourself. Um, and and obviously it's flooded with all sorts of other shit. But um, I, how do you think this relates to uh, what happened in China, though? Because you're saying like what's currently happening is a leaderless movement. Um, yep. The first go about, you described, though, had leaders. How did that transition happen?
1: My theory, well, I think there's probably a a couple theories. One is a lot of people got arrested (laughs) or disbarred. So a lot of people went through sort of the proper channels. They they ran their little races, and they got elected, and then China said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't be a legislator. Or they... Tried to do the proper pr- uh, protests, and China went, "Uh-uh, you're going to jail." Or China to its emissaries. Uh, think of Hong Kong like Vichy France, and it's a lot easier. So they say to their emissaries, "Yeah, put that person in jail." So part of it is is probably. I think the most likely explanation is fear. Okay. Where paradoxically, China think of it like Mickey with the broom. So China thinks, "Okay, I'll cut this broom down." Oh, okay. There's two more brooms. Oh, there's four more brooms. Yeah. Oh, there's eight more brooms. So China by the only method that it knows is extreme authoritarianism uh, by prosecuting and punishing the protests uh, as vigorously as it ordered its emissaries in Hong Kong to do in the first go around has made it so it's created a leaderless structure. Because if I have a leaderless structure, there's no one to target. I don't want to be a leader necessarily because it makes me a target, and so it's this fascinating experiment of organic, revolutionary action, where anyone can be a participant, but no one knows who anyone is.
0: Yeah, anyone
1: anyone can be part of. Everyone's at the eyes wide shut sex party.
0: <laughs>
1: but no one knows, you know, uh, who 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 is is participating in this action. So just to give you a couple examples, the, the revolutionary tactics in Hong Kong skew towards the anonymous. So if you're a protester, a lot of the kids there are sacrificing, you know, their the wages in Hong Kong are extremely low. So basically you don't eat breakfast or lunch so you can afford your hard hat or your your, tier, your tear gas mask. So what people are doing is they're organizing donation drives for the protests. When you're leaving a protest, you know how uh, there are swipe cards now for the, the Metro in the New York you can pay with your phone? Yes. They don't want to do that in Hong Kong because, uh-oh, you can track my digital signature. So what uh, uh, Anonymous uh, uh, Good Samaritans do is they leave Metro one swipe cards. For protesters organized by the amount of money people would need to get to various areas of Hong Kong. Right. When I step on a Hong Kong subway, if I have an uh, airdrop, if I have my airdrop open on my iPhone, I'll be flooded with various political messages in English, Cantonese, maybe even Mandarin, uh, telling me this protest is happening today, come. This protest is happening today come and the most famous symbol i think of sort of the anonymous nature of the hong kong protests are the Lenin walls which i absolutely love you're starting to see them in places with large hong kong diasporas you'll see one in in new york sim where there are these huge walls uh, of just post-it notes of people putting their thoughts why they're doing the protests The reason they wanted to uh, protest in the first place, messages of support to one another. And the great thing about them, Jake, is that they, they make a space liminal. So a lemon wall you can set up anywhere. You can put it on a police station. You can put it on a government building you don't like. You can put it on the billboard of a politician who's a supporter of Beijing. And it transforms any space In Hong Kong into potentially a space of revolutionary energy and action
0: yeah we had uh, one in um, in Union Square after Trump got elected but it was uh, predictably much dumber and just sort of hashtag resistancy Uh, Mm. a lot of meaningless statements about um, you know love and resistance and all this stuff and uh, the orange Cheeto and all that shit Sure. Yeah,
1: But it, it, I think that liminality is very interesting, and that also is the an- anonymity that Beijing has sort of forced through its its um, targeting apparatus, where no one wants to be a target, so everyone is a participant. Yeah, and the way it can continue, is if it organically grows like an amoeba, is the slogan of the Hong Kong protests is, be like water. So you'll see the protesters, let's oh. say the police have set up a tear gas.
0: Didn't, uh, didn't Bruce Lee say that?
1: Yeah, I think he did. And I'd have to check the origin um, of how it arose organically in the Hong Kong protests. But so let's say I'm the police and uh, I've set up a a kettling operation on two major avenues. Even if the march is supposed to go to a, a, a place where they're kettling, the Hong Kong protesters have set up literal direction signs. For for the march, so you'll have this march of seventy thousand people, and at the front, like sort of like Prince Ali when he's marching to try to you know tap Jasmine, you'll have these <laughs> people with these uh, these turn left, and seventy thousand people will turn left. You'll have someone with a sign that says "Go back," seventy thousand people will go back, and it's it's just this literal organic mass of people acting as one. Um, so I think long answer to your question. It has uh, this targeting apparatus of Beijing. We can sort of see how authoritarian methodology backfired because it made everyone a participant Uh, in a leaderless movement. Everyone is a revolutionary. And the people of Hong Kong know the only way to keep this going is for everyone to, to work together.
0: Um yeah I guess that uh that just functionally kind of reminds me of the Otto Noman uh, antifa black block stuff um just structurally but what's interesting i guess is um just to tie back to what we were talking about earlier with the whole you know celebrity thing that's uh, sort of infected uh the left in america um the it's weird i guess what you're describing is a situation over there where the most safest thing you can do is be anonymous. And here, I don't know if it's the safest thing, but the most advantageous thing to a lot of people is to become like a celebrity or to become, or to the, 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 cer the like acquirement of followers or the search for fame is somehow uh, inseparable from all types of politics in this country, except for, you know, Vague anti-fascist uh, Organizing um, I mean I certainly when the ice thing happened To me I was like oh, I need to tell the story As much as possible because I feel Safer if people know who I am Because it'll get reported on I guess um, You know if anything happens but uh, but That being said and something that I Talk about a lot on this show is that like The you know the Self interest In the search for fame like corrupts Everything that you're doing as uh, I mean, I'd say as an artist, and certainly as a journalist too, it's really hard to remain objective when uh, you know your, especially your income is like tied to whether or not people treat you as like a, a public figure or something. I don't know. It's really dirty. It sucks. Um, I don't know. Wish I wouldn't like this.
1: I I personally, Jake, to be honest, I don't think it's a real leftism. I don't, I mean, I'm more of like the, you know, I spoke to Code Pink recently. And I know that for a lot of people, they're like this sort of cliche, wine mom, leftism. But you, you talk to them and it's like they go to North Korea. They go to Iran. They went to Iran <laughs> um, to support the government. They've gone down to Venezuela. The the One of the founders, Medea Benjamin, She's gotten her arm broken before, I think, by Israeli security. She's gotten spit at and called a cunt, you know, multiple times. Um, and I've, then I've I had that. that to, <laughs> to some of the people who you and I listen to. And it's it is like, who are you to judge these people who are putting their body on the line for something that they think is far bigger than themselves? So I I at least from living in Asia and and putting a lot of research into these sort of things, I am done with any leftism that centers an individual over the many. And that includes the media. If we're sort of creating media figures who, and I know you've dealt with a little bit of this, and we're not going to get into it because it's stupid. But if you're sort of creating media figures where the point is to just become famous, you're, you're not a leftist. You know, you're someone who is utilizing trends to gain a bit of notoriety and probably just try to build whatever little arc you can Um,
0: oh i see what you're saying yeah (laughs) i mean there's a real problem where this is just overlapping uh here in brooklyn with becoming like a public intellectual or something like that which is a completely fucking useless thing to be and to have around
1: what I would say, Jake, to be honest, is I think what what would really help is if more people branched out. And that lets you know that if you're having these doubts, or even if you just want to see how things are done elsewhere, it offers you a really great method of, of compare and contrast. So talking to people who are not American, seeing how protests are done internationally, comparing what a left looks like in a place like Taiwan to uh, the US. All these things I think are very helpful for building something that's bigger and different and more complicated and more interesting than whatever it is we have now. Um, And I think if, if you have all these sort of complicated feelings about it, that is at a minimum saying like something's not right. And rather than sort of try to force ourselves to just say, well, this is the best we got, I think at least for what I want to do is offer an alternative for people that they can at least turn to to explore some of these other ideas, um, and so that's what I'd say to anyone. And that's originally why I got into sort of the travel industry. Um, but it's very useful for leftism to explore other countries' history. Like Japan has a crazy leftist history, absolutely nuts. One, like one of the the most uh, radical pro-Palestinian activists in the history of of any country was from Japan uh, during the, during the seventies. Do you ever hear about that? No. Do you hear about Marion Williamson's orbs? And I'm going to keep bringing that up because it's so (laughs) fucking stupid. You hear about that all the time. Do you hear about, you know, the, the left in Thailand that was indigenous rice farmers, poor ass dudes who all they wanted was to buy an iPhone. And so what they did during their huge protest in the late two thousands is they went to luxury malls and they said, look, the police will not shoot us if we're by these expensive luxury malls because they don't want to damage the purses. So you had all these jokes in Thailand about like, well, let's build body armor out of like Gucci purses and then the police won't shoot us. Um, there are all these fascinating perspectives, different ideas, Marx and Deleuze and Guattari and Fisher and uh activists like Gene Sharp or Chomsky, who've been translated into Thai or Burmese or, or Chinese and reflected and uh, considered in ways radically different from how those ideas are considered in America. So I think that if something isn't working, you look around and you sort of see what feels right to you or what might provide a different perspective. And I think that's where uh, the U.S. left could learn quite a bit Um in not uh imitating a lot of the problems of our foreign policy you know if 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 our leftism is the same as our foreign policy where it's this sort of thing we want to force on the rest of the world rather than dialoguing and interacting with it i don't really think it's gonna get us anywhere good
0: yeah i mean i agree i guess the way that i would look at the american left right now is that it is in its infancy and uh And might be going away soon, depending on, uh, I don't know, like, uh, what goes on in this next election. I know leftism is fucking not just, uh, you know, electoral politics, etc. But there, I mean, you can just viscerally feel the, um, the... Uh, passion for these movements sort of like ebbing and flowing and uh, wavering it comes in comes these big waves you know it definitely doesn't feel the same as it did during occupy here or even like a few years ago after trump got elected everything has a real tendency to go back to normal and to become very hazy and fatigued here um and so i guess like the part of the reason that it, the, the thing about the, the this left like kind of online movement to me that is unique in a not great way but it's something that we need to like pick apart and understand to make it better is that i think that you know america fucking makes culture right and so it's just the currency that we deal in and for that reason you know for better or worse Chapo Trap House has more listeners than the DSA has members, you know? I mean, what does that mean, you know? Um, I know one of those things is an organization that you have to go to every day, and one of them is a, a podcast that you listen to passively while you're, you know, you're working, and maybe you're not a, you're a person that doesn't have time to uh, to organize or to fucking uh, canvas or anything like that. But, I mean, one of those things is just way more pervasive, and, um, and so... I think the, but the problem there is that if we're good leftists, then we understand that, like, culture isn't really a tool that reverse engineers society. So this might be a big fucking waste of time. Us just all listening to these podcasts and just circle jerking and, uh, you know, congratulating each other for having good hot takes on things or whatever. On the other hand, we have reached, like, a point where communication is so, you know, massive and pervasive now that... I do think that certain leftist arguments that culture is, is meaningless are not no longer relevant. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could be, I, th- I, I agree with you that I do. Fuck, I do. I do long for a better future where, um, instead of just making jokes about people that are running for president in the democratic party, um, you know, mass organ mass communication of the type that we're, uh, you know that we're engaged in could be used for organizing big protests in the streets and leaving metro cards for people uh, and working against the system in that way. Um, I don't know. I, you got me on a tip here. I am <laughs> I sometimes have to take myself out of America to think about how yeah, I think that's, dumb it is. It's you know? really
1: valuable, Jake. I, I think like a good way... You know, what I'm saying is I, I will come American- to China. Sure. Uh, come to Taiwan. Um, what uh, what um, I think is really healthy is to see how other people are doing things, like to go back to that point of being the democracy who democratizes nations. I'm giving you – I'm thinking of that Simpsons clip where Bill Gates goes, all right, boys, buy him out. That's how most people know <laughs> – democracy. So when you look at Asia, not only are these the nations, when we look at uh, countries like Vietnam, uh, China, uh, I'm trying to think if there's, if I'm missing one. Uh, Yeah, I probably am. But these are countries that not only have defeated the US, but these are countries that have dealt with things like imperialism. Um, If you look at uh, Vietnam, if you look at the Philippines, if you look at Cambodia, if you look at uh, Burma, if you look at Japan, these are countries that are extremely familiar with what it means to be sort of dominated and controlled in a way that, you know, we talk a big game about, oh, Marx, but that's very abstract. It's very different than having an American soldier in your living room. Uh, And it's very different than picking up the gun when you're a peasant and fighting for a cause like communism. So I think that there's a lot that Asia can can teach us. And I think that if we realize that there is some, I think what Baudrillard called interpassivity, that there's a lot of products, cultural products that have the Same great taste of revolution, but none of the fat, (laughs) none of the calories. Then look to where those actions are actually being taken and see what you can learn. If there's nothing happening here and we're just, you know, I think really being Jon Stewart, except with more tattoos and neck (laughs) beards, then, you know, look to where people are actually going out in the street. Try to figure out what's driving them. It could be a vision of a sacred mountain. It could be the vision of, of, of true freedom, whatever that means. And see what we can glean from that and use within our own country. Because like I said, we don't wanna be the country that both forces our will on the west of the world and then ignores the voices of when people find their own voice. We can't be the, you know, the nation that both drowns out everyone else's voice through our foreign policy and then doesn't listen when people are trying to talk to us. And Hong Kong, uh, and in New Zealand and in, in uh Hawaii, which considers itself a sovereign nation for many of the activists there, so I'm including it. They're asking for people to listen. They don't they, they don't want you to fly there. They don't want you to, you know, suddenly try to speak Cantonese. They just want you to listen. And I think that at a minimum for all the blood and horror uh that america has unleashed and the ignorance we still unleash as tourists that is the minimum we can do and and so that's been sort of my pet cause these past two months of of just saying look just stop reading these events like the news you're not from there get people on who are from there and just listen and have a conversation and maybe we can build something That is truly global. But the first step is to listen. And until we do that, I mean, I think all of this is just talk.
0: Sure. Um, Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I I have to get out of here myself. Oh, no worries, Jake. Um, But I guess um, we should wrap up about here. I'll edit around this so it's less choppy. But uh, was there anything you really wanted to end on or should we just sort of get to it?
1: Uh, Well, I would just say that for um, what we do uh, at Asia Art Tours is a lot of what we do is we're trying to sort of talk about ways that um, colonialism is deified in travel and sort of how identities are created. So when a lot of leftists travel to Asia, they sort of repeat or engage with the stereotypes of those nations rather than try to figure out why those are the cultural forms they're seeing. So things like the kimono or tea ceremonies or the Chinese flag, those all have really complicated histories to them. Oftentimes they're used by the state uh, in very advantageous or, or Propag- prop propagandistic ways sure. and it would behoove a lot of leftists to learn a lot more about why am I seeing women in a kimono and no feminists because there's answers for that but you have to do digging and then I guess the only other thing I'd say is for me as a leftist I've given up on things like DSA um, I'm all for it if they you know do some cool shit that's great but I would point people to pursue indigenous philosophy uh, and activism, I think that's going to be the big defining movement uh, as we fight climate change that we've unleashed. So, some of the leftists who've had the biggest impact on me were not DSAers, uh, who again won't respond to emails, <laughs> but people like Raj Patel, Dr. Nick Estes, um, and Glenn Coulthard who all uh, are either indigenous themselves or work in those communities, are three great places for people to start if they want to try to have uh, non-Marxist but still very left, very radical environmental perspective on why the world is the way it is and how we can change it. Um, So that's all I'd say When, when people should travel, dig into who they are as a white person or an American and try to figure out what the cultural forms they're interacting with are, and if the DSA or mean podcasts make you sad, listen to other people who maybe (laughs) aren't mean.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, um, that's why it's good that we're making a lot of different stuff, I suppose. Um, Oh, yeah. I I, I, I I feel as though I must reassure you that uh, the DSA is not that – a big of a it's not that uh, hot of an item around here these days <laughs> in the left yeah. even uh it oh, seems yeah. so a lot of people like myself consider themselves way further to the left than the dsa and the dsa has become popular enough to where it's just full of liberals now um <laughs> cool so everyone took a big step to the left uh all at the same time um i think i'm not sure i'm not very active anymore but um cool but anyways uh yeah well hey man it was great talking to you uh let's do it again um i guess let me know where my listeners can find you if they want to follow you if they want to read anything that you're doing uh, or sure. if you have any more recommendations on where uh people can start reading about this stuff
1: sure well i'll i'll send you some great links and books for people who want to get more into the history of the left in southeast asia and japan um and China. China's complicated now. But uh, people can find our website at asiaarttours.com. We set up tours to meet artists and activists throughout Asia for people who want to do something that's not being waited on <laughs> at a pool. And um, the, we have our own podcast where we talk to artists and thinkers uh, throughout Asia. It's called the Arts of Travel podcast. You can find that uh on itunes and spotify um and our twitter's pretty active if you want to see us get in fights with people in the u.s that's a good place to follow us but we're we're really friendly so if you reach out i'll say hi
0: all oh, right just like chomsky you'll say oh, hi. oh yeah except much dumber <laughs> <laughs> all right matt well it was great talking to you man uh have a good one
1: bye jake